Thanks for joining the Capital Church podcast channel. For more resources and to learn more about Capital Church, please visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at All right, turn, turn to your neighbor and say, man, whatever team you like, just say, go whatever team you like. Come on. All right, you guys ready? You guys ready? All right. I have 34 minutes and 56 seconds. How many think I can get finished in that amount of time? I think I can do it. I think I can do it. All right, all right, all right. Uh, we're going to turn to Mark chapter 9, and I'm just going to read a chunk of Scripture. And I think when we read Scripture, it's important for us to kind of develop a biblical imagination. So when I'm reading uh, this, this story, uh, I, I think it would be good if, like, you put yourself in the shoes of the Father, um, and kind of just imagine, or even the shoes of the disciples, and imagine what it would be like to be in this story. Uh, today I'm going to do my best to talk about denial. Everyone say denial and confession. Everyone say confession. We're in the season of Lent uh, last Wednesday. We're, we're not a liturgical church uh, per se. I mean, every now and then we'll, we'll celebrate Lent um, and or participate in Lent. Uh, but this last week uh, we started with Ash Wednesday. And uh, that kind of kicks off the Lenten season. Uh, we are excited to get to Easter. Can I get an amen to that? But it's, it's also important before we get to Easter that we learn something about the cross. And so over the next few weeks, I'm going to be talking about power. I'm going to talk about how Jesus reframes reality. I'm going to talk about what does it mean to be a, a cruciformed follower of Jesus. Uh, we're going to deal with wealth. We might address um, identity. There's a lot of different things we'll talk about. Uh, but today I want to talk about denial and confession as kind of the foundation for human flourishing. So Mark chapter 9, we're going to begin in verse 14. Jesus and, and a few of his disciples had just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. In verse 14 uh, reads, And when they came to the disciples, Jesus and, and Peter and James and John, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, everyone say the crowd, so it's kind of a mob <clears throat> uh, that's surrounding Jesus and the disciples. And so they saw him, and they were greatly amazed and ran up to him. And what did they do? They greeted him. And he asked them, Jesus does, what are you arguing about with them? So someone from the crowd answered him and said, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, Jesus, O faithless generation, how long? Everyone say, how long? How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring it to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Just a few more verses. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And then dad said, from childhood. And has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. 
And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things, everyone say all things, are possible for the one who believes. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Anyone ever felt kind of muddled like this before? I believe, help my unbelief. Come on, anyone ever felt that? Okay, verse 25, and when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and in the Greek, it's translated here in the English, lifted him up, but in the Greek, uh, the word that is used refers to resurrection. So Mark is telling us this is a resurrection story. So he took the boy by his hand, lifted him up, resurrected him, and he rose. Verse 28, and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately. We have kind of an enigmatic ending uh, here in this particular story. So you have this tete-a-tete between Jesus and his disciples. And so the disciples asked Jesus, why could we not cast it out? We might talk about this over the next few weeks. Verse 29, Jesus answers, and he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Everyone believe in prayer? Amen. Bow your heads, close your eyes as we pray. Father, I thank you that you are with us today. Jesus, we, we love you, and uh, we just thank you for your grace. We just ask you to just help us to see you. Lord, we just thank you that your power and your presence is here. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, how many readers do we have here? Okay. Um, if you like to read, you, you might like this, um, this particular book. I'm going to start off with a book that I just, I'm going to summarize this book. And it's called The Trial. Has anyone ever read The Trial? Okay. It's uh, kind of an enigmatic author. He was brilliant. And he, uh, I'm going to summarize this book for you. He, uh, he wrote this book, and the protagonist of the story is Joseph K. Everyone say Joseph K. So he's the main character of this story, and he's living like the good life, right? So the good life, I'm just going to like whatever. It's like going to Starbucks, right? Uh, waiting for March Madness, right? You fill out your brackets, right? Your team goes all the way, wins the championship. No, no college basketball fans. Okay. Um, it's maybe going to Target, whatever. It's, it's, this guy's living, living the good life, normal life. How many of you want to live a good life? Okay, so this guy's like us, right? So put yourself in his shoes. So he's just kind of chilling one day and uh, hanging out, and then all of a sudden he's arrested, and he's taken into custody, which would be like my worst fear ever, like pastor on the, plastered on the front page of the newspaper, goes to jail, right? Anyways, um, that is my worst fear. Anyways, so he, he has no idea why he's um, taken into custody. No one tells him what he did wrong. So really the whole plot of the story, remember Joseph K is the protagonist. He's living the good life, chilling, doing his thing. Then he gets arrested. The whole time, though, in jail, he goes from like person to person to person trying to figure out what he was accused of. In fact, several times he goes to the warden. The warden doesn't give him answers. He's obfuscating the evidence or whatever. And so um, time and time again, he does not get an answer to his question. Okay, why am I in jail? Right? How many of you would know the answer to that question? 
Like, Lord, have mercy. Why am I in prison, right? No one wants to go to prison. Like, no one wants to live that life. So he's trying to figure this out. So he goes to supervisors. He goes to other people, and no one gives him a clear answer. Then he gets to the point at the end of this book. Again, it's called The Trial. And he's, uh, he's trying to figure out. He's really perplexed about life. He's ask, asking existential questions. Raising 45 kids will cause something like that, right? Um, so he's thinking through, okay, um, purpose, his purpose of life. And then he's trying to figure out, okay, what did I do wrong? And so he, start, he, he tries to, on his own, he tries to figure out, okay, maybe, maybe he looked back 10 years. Maybe, I, maybe I'm in prison because I did that, right? And so he's trying to find a causal link between why he's in prison and what he did. And he could not find an answer, right? He goes through different answers, and he's just perplexed. He does not know why he was accused, why he was taken into custody, and why he uh, went to prison. And he never finds out. This is kind of a tragic comic story. Never finds out. In fact, um, the ending of the story is graphic. The warden ends up stabbing him and he dies. Welcome to Sunday, people. So, Chris, why are we talking about this? Well, I want to talk about denial. The author of this book was asked, okay, what, man, come on, man, what were you trying to communicate? about our culture, because obviously this is a, a satire, maybe a little bit of an allegory regarding our culture. And basically the point that he was trying to make is we live in a world now where we don't believe in judgment, we don't believe in sin, and yet we still feel that there's something wrong with us. But we can't pinpoint it, right? So we know, come on, how many of you know in your bones that there's something off with our world? Right? Can we speak honestly in church? But let's also be honest. We know that there's not just something wrong out there, but there's also something wrong inside of me and, and you. And so this is the question that uh, this author wanted to address. In fact, our cultural mood is driven or shaped by this eschewing of any category that's related to sin or judgment or I am wrong rhetoric. And because we've eschewed those categories, people in our culture are perplexed about what is so stinking wrong inside of us. And we're left doubting everything. In fact, one philosopher in describing our cultural mood said this. Uh, in the past, the difficulty in accepting Christianity was its second point. Its second point was all about salvation. In former pre-modern salvations... Everyone knew that sin was real, but many doubted salvation. Today, everyone say today. Today it is the exact opposite. Everybody is saved. Everybody is right. Everybody, like just pretty much right when it comes to our political opinion, we're right on. Right? That's the culture that we live in. And because everybody is saved, there's no need for sin to be saved from the problem. We're left in this perplexing condition of wrongness. And we don't know how to um, address it. I think culturally we have forgotten ourselves. We have forgotten ourselves. In fact, one poet said this. God has left creation in the hands of clumsy amateurs. Have you ever been clumsy in your following of Jesus? 
Have you ever bumbled your way through life trying to figure out what God wants you to do? Could everyone just raise your hand and say amen? Am I the only one that ever gets confused, ever feels weird, has funny feelings? Apparently I'm the only, okay, come on, right? So we have forgotten ourselves. We assume and we act, and this is cultural. You go on Twitter, you go on Instagram, everyone acts as if they've been around for 10,000 years. So here's the new fad, here's the new thing on veganism, here's the new thing on flexitarianism, here's the new thing on being a democratic socialist, here's the new thing on being a neoconservative, here's the new thing, and my opinion is right. Can I just tell you something really quick? If your God never disagrees with your political position, then I think you need to stop, and you need to check yourself, and you need to reevaluate who you're actually serving. Am I, am I getting too, too preachy? Like, and when you clap, some of you are thinking about somebody else, right? I know what you, because I was thinking about somebody else, right? And that goes against the point that I'm trying to make. We are not basically right all the time. Here, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, St. Paul gives us the definition of maturity. What is it? Those who are mature recognize, it's a basic recognition, that we see in part. What's his definition of, of immaturity? It's those who assume that they see fully. That their political, their political persuasion is exhaustive. And there can't possibly be any nuance. I think I'm offending a lot of people here today. Right? One journalist describes, she's, she's a self-proclaimed, self-confessed wrongologist, which I love. Right? I disagree with most of her article, but I love what she said about herself. Right? And, she, and I, I mention this a lot, probably at least once a year, but she goes, okay, what does it feel like being wrong? Any, any thoughts? What does it feel like being wrong? Any thoughts? Front row, do not, you know the answer. Shut your mouths. <laughs> Come on, somebody, what does it feel like to be wrong? Mary, be quiet. No, okay. Huh, anyone over here? What's that? You feel bad. Yes, that, that can be a symptom. Embarrassing, humiliated, yes. Yes, all that's great, but actually she says if what feels like being wrong is you feel like you're right. You're so confused because we think we're basically right all the time about the cowboys, about apple pie, right? About our politics, about who should be in office, about our churches, about our families. I mean, some people are, come on somebody, we're crazy on Twitter, we're crazy on social media. Like, if you don't do it my way, we start judging everybody throwing everybody on the, under the bus, right? We just work from an assumption that we are right. St. Augustine, a long time ago, said this in Latin. He said, Fowler ergo sum, I am wrong. This is his definition of what it means to be human. I am wrong, therefore I am. That's his starting point. Well, here's the thing. Like some, some of you are like, okay, when can, Chris, when can we get to the good stuff, right? Well, I just want to make the point, I think, we live in a culture that's defined and shaped by denial. And because we can't admit that we are in denial, we have no power. Right? We, 
And now I'm talking to church people, right? I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you right now. I, I think many of us, because we fail to admit that we can be wrong or there's a gap between what we say on Sunday and what we do through the week that we don't have the resurrection power of Jesus available to us. The problem is, and I think many people think this, when we think of, of admitting that we're wrong, right? Or when we accept responsibility. Or when we confess that, okay, maybe I'm not basically right all the time. For many people, that feels like getting a, a notice in the mail that you have jury duty. <laughs> or going to the dentist. How many of you like going to the dentist? It's the worst thing ever. Some of you, admitting responsibility is like someone saying, I want you to go adopt a feral animal, right? <laughs> or become a Seahawks fan, okay? Whatever. <laughs> but we can't, like, okay, I'm going to stand and then I'm going to sit down. Um, just bear with me. I think it would be so refreshing if a politician would get up, and maybe even some pastors, okay? But a politician would get up and for once admit that they were wrong. No? Come on. That would be refreshing, right? That, okay, man, I didn't get it right there, but this is my vision uh, moving forward. Here's the thing. The problem, and one of the reasons why we refuse to do that, is because we've embraced a culture of denial, which has led to this self-righteousness. And so people are scared to confess that they're wrong because we live in such a hyperized, judgmental culture because we all assume that we're basically right. Now, I'm not trying to do, like, psychobabble on us. I just want you to hear me. Are you with me? So the story, we come to the story. Um, of Jesus. Before I do that, I, I want to give you just context of what's going on. Mark chapter 8 to Mark chapter 10, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Everyone say, on his way. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's inaugurated the kingdom, right? He's generating a new state of affairs. The world of space, time, matter is being thoroughly transformed. It's relatively easy from Mark chapter 1 to Mark chapter 8. And then Mark chapter 8, something changes. There's more resistance. Jesus starts talking about uh, his own death. He has three passion predictions in Mark 8 to Mark 10. But Mark uses this, the, the scholars will call it this mark and frame or this framing device. He takes Mark 8 and Mark 10 and frames it around the healing of two blind men. One blind man at Bethsaida is healed by Jesus. It took Jesus twice, which is a, we'll talk about that later. It's kind of a crazy little story. And at the end of Mark 10, we have the healing of blind Bart, Bartimaeus, okay? So Mark is telling us that the chunk or the stories between these two healing stories of Jesus healing the blind men has something to do with the disciples. In fact, Mark 8 and 10 highlights the failure of the disciples to understand the kingdom of God and what Jesus is doing. In fact, Jesus says not just in the Synoptic Gospels, but in all four Gospels. Are you with me in this? Jesus insists that blindness is ubiquitous. 
Blindness is not just relegated to the Democrats or to the conservatives or the democratic socialists or to that demographic group or to that church or whatever. Blindness runs through every human heart. Can I get an amen? In fact, Jesus obsesses over eyes, right? He goes, man, if you got a plank in your eye before you start working on specks in other people's eyes, why don't you get the stinking plank out of your eye? He also talks about um, taking your eyes and cutting them out, right? He addresses the Pharisees and the religious aristocracy and says, man, if you guys think you see, you don't actually see. In fact, Jesus is saying that the, the basic tragic feature of the human heart is visual impairment. And we see this fleshed out with the disciples. The disciples, and we're going to talk about this over the next three weeks, but the disciples misunderstand power. They misunderstand wealth. They misunderstand the kingdom of God. They misunderstand what God is doing time and time again. Blindness is in the disciples of Jesus. The good news is the paradox that Jesus um, issues when he addresses blindness is that, we'll call it the paradox of seeing, is that when we admit we can't see, that's the beginning of our ability to actually see. It's when you realize, in other words, that you are in fact wrong more often than you give yourself credit. That is when you be, and I'm talking to every married folk in here, right? That is when you begin to start to see, begin to see, start to see. So we come to the story in verse 21. I love it. Like I used to think that the father, there was something wrong with him. Growing up, just give me about 10 more minutes and then I'll be done here. I used to think like, okay, the, the dad, like he's, maybe there's something pathological, right? There's weakness in him. Like he, in response to Jesus, says, I believe, but I don't believe. And I didn't like the muddledness, right? So I would read this, this passage, and I assumed that this father was an anti-model. Or he wasn't, in other words, paradigmatic for following Jesus. I have now changed course, and I believe what Mark is trying to tell us is that if you want to get out of your blindness, if you want to get into the power of God, if you want to overcome evil in your life, if you want to overcome and diminish the powers of anxiety and despair and rage and all the things that deform us in our life, we have to go and look at this guy and his response and see what happens and how Jesus responds to him. So this is what happens. We have a little tete-a-tete between Jesus and um, this Father, Jesus comes to him and asks him, okay, how long has this been happening to your son? What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is inviting confession. Before he heals anything, he needs to work with people that are willing to admit that they don't have what it takes. In fact, you see this throughout the story of the Bible. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, what is the first thing that Jesus, or excuse me, God says, Yahweh says to Adam and Eve after they rebelled in the garden? He goes, where are you? Is God confused? No, God's not confused at all. What is God doing when he asks Adam and Eve, where are they? He's inviting them into confession. 
We see this in Genesis chapter 4. Cain kills his bro, right? God comes and says, where's your bro? God knows exactly what's going on. What is God doing to Cain? He's inviting him into confession. This is what Jesus is doing with this father. He's inviting him into confession. And then as the father opens up and starts telling the story of his son, right? The father gets to the point where he says, help me, right? I believe, but I don't believe. Have you ever felt that? I believe on Sunday, but man, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then part-time Saturday, it's just hard to believe, right? I come on Sunday, and this is, man, I put on a good show, right? My wife and I, and I'm not talking about me specifically, just hypothetical. I need to clarify that. <laughs> and like everything is okay, but our marriage is in shambles. Some of you, you come and like, man, man, it just been, today I ask you, did you have a good week? You're like, I had a great week. But people don't know that you have a radical sex addiction that is taking and stealing your soul and your intimacy in your marriage, right? Some of you are just, you're, you're filled with anxiety and you can't see the future, right? What's built into anxiety is this insatiable need for control. And Jesus even says, hey, man, let tomorrow worry for itself. Stop trying to carry Thursday, Friday, Saturday when you're in Wednesday, right? Just learn to carry one day. And when you learn to carry one day, I'll, I'll give you my grace, right? And we can talk about that. And we're like, oh, amen, Brother Chris, right? And then we go in the week and we still struggle with anxiety. Here's, here's, here's our pathway out of that. Here's how we get out of blindness, right? We first have to admit, it's, it's paradoxical, we first have to admit that we don't see, that we're not right, that we don't have all the answers. You have to admit, yeah, I've been in church for 30 years, but man, I still think I need some more growing. Right? That's the starting point, and I love this. He goes, the Father, help me. I believe, but I don't believe. And then what does Jesus do? In response to confession, Jesus heals the boy. In response to confession, Jesus doesn't shame the father. Jesus doesn't condemn him. Right? Jesus like, what's wrong with you? He doesn't say that. No, Jesus looks the father's eyes. Man. And I think at this moment, I think Jesus represents the Father's love for all of us. Turns to the boy and commands that supra power, whatever, that taken over that boy's body, commands him to leave, and the boy is healed. Healing, please hear me. The victory that God has for you, please hear me. God's grace, right, is a part of this, but it's all on the other side of entering into a conversation with God confessing that there is a gap between Sunday and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And when you do that, when you confessionalize your life, when you just open your heart to God, that is when the power of God will flood your soul, your mind, your entire bodied life.
But if we, we stay in denial, right? We refuse to admit that maybe, maybe the reason why I'm struggling in my marriage is maybe it's not her or him. Can I get, can I get an amen? I, I, get, I, I feel weird when everyone gets really quiet. Right? It's funny. When, it, when, when we live in a denial culture, what happens? What's the fruits of a denial culture? It's blame shifting. It's funny. I'm having a, a wonderful season with my two older boys who are the best boys in the world. And they love Jesus. And they love my wife and I. And they're great boys. I just got to clarify, they're great boys. But they're still struggling with this. This sense of like denial and not taking full responsibility. And my wife and I have been walking them through this kind of process of, okay, when we come to correct you, I don't want to hear what your bro did wrong. It's like they didn't, I'll ask them, okay, why are we here right now? Usually what happens is the response is, well, my sis did this and my bro did that and I'm not feeling well. And then they go back into, I totally get it. They're playing the game. They feel fine, right? And then I have to bring them back into, okay, this is what makes a person after God's own heart. It's when they, they learn to take responsibility for their choices and their sin. And they stop blame shifting and spiritualizing and excuse making. And they eschew that. And they just listen to what either my wife or I have to say right? And they respond. That's the heart of confession. Confession, what is it? Really quick as I close and I want to pray for all of us. What is confession? In the words of one author, confession is naming and grieving our situation. It's, uh, man, it's, it's saying, okay, I'm not okay. Saying that I'm not all right. Like I come to church and I kind of put on a facade. I've been in church a while, and I kind of know what to say. I kind of know what to, to think. But to be honest, when I go home, I'm not what I project. Right? We're masters. Because of social media, we're masters of curating, right, in a, like a appearance. We curate this image. That's what I'm looking for, right? And we project it. And so when we come to church or when we just kind of live our lives, we just kind of in many ways, we just kind of just, it's through drift, we just kind of are living in denial. But confession is naming and grieving when we're not strong. Naming and grieving, again, when we're not right. It's admitting that, hey, I'm not as nice as I should be, right? Or not as holy as I should be. Some of us need to admit, I think all of us need to admit that prejudice runs through every human heart. I was hoping for a really good amen to that. Some of you need to admit, like you talk about the love of Jesus on Sunday, but then Monday through Tuesday and Thursday, you're hating on people on Twitter and Facebook and social media, at work, your family, everything, right? Even hating on people who hate on people is still hating on people. So what, is, what are we talking about in this season of Lent, right? What is confession all about? It's naming and grieving our situation. It's, it's grieving over the gap or the distance between, in the words of one author, 
what we believe and how we actually are. This doesn't mean, because many of you have been baptized, this, I'm not trying to negate that. This doesn't mean that like baptism wasn't effective. I'm not saying that in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus didn't die for your sins and you don't have the victory of God. I'm not saying that. Can I get an amen? I'm not saying that when we talk about confession and admitting that we're wrong and naming that gap stuff that you're talking about, Chris. I'm not suggesting that 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is wrong, that you're no longer a new creation, right? Old things have passed away. I believe all of that. We talk about who you are in Christ. But what we find in Scripture is that when we come to Jesus, all the things that are made available to us don't happen automatically. And so part of following Jesus is learning to be who you already are. And within that kind of framework of learning to be who you already are is you have to practice the art of confessing and being honest with the gap and the distance between what you see in Scripture and what you see in your own life. Am I talking to anybody here today? It's important that we do this. If we want the power of, of the Holy Spirit, if we want freedom, if we want to be all that God wants us to be for the sake of people in this city, we have to, because the culture ain't going to do this, we as a church have to embrace confession. And here's the thing. When we embrace confession and we open our hearts to Jesus, Jesus doesn't come to shame you. He doesn't come, you don't see any condemnation in this passage. What do you see? I'm just going to make the argument, all you see is love. That's all you see. When you come to Jesus and name the gap, right, or the distance in your life, guess what happens to that gap? God floods it with his love. 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul makes it very clear, I'm the chief of all sinners. The man that changed the world had the strength, please hear me, had the strength to admit that he was the chief of all sinners. And that statement is sandwiched by, but I received mercy and God's grace and love was overflowing. So what is it, Paul? Is it God's grace or is it you're the chief of sinners? And he would say, it's both. So why is it? Why is it that we don't confess? Because we don't like vulnerability. Because as Americans, we are stinking obsessed with power. We've made this Faustian pack with power, right? We've sold our soul to the devil. And you know why we can't love like Jesus shows us in the scriptures? Is because we're so obsessed with being powerful and successful. I'm gonna go after this so hard next week. Well, like, I, and I've, I've been even guilty of this and I gotta close here, I wanna pray for us. I've been guilty in some of my messages saying, hey, when we, when we talk about confession and, and humility, at the, at the heart of that, that's vulnerability. And I've said this before in some messages. And vulnerability is not weakness. It's strength. I disagree. Vulnerability is weakness. Why are we ashamed of weakness? Paul says... His grace is sufficient for me. Hold up. His strength, not my strength, not your strength, his strength 
is made perfect in my weakness. The greatest human outside of Jesus says, not my strength, his strength. The one that changed the world, not my strength, his strength. And it's in my weakness that I'm healed. It's in my weakness when I admit it, I get out of my visual impairment. It's when I acknowledge my weakness, that's when God's power starts to flow like a like a mighty river. Come on, somebody. That's when God takes over, is when I start there. If you don't start there, you can't get into resurrection power. You can't get into Easter. You can't get into victory over that addiction. You can't overcome evil. You can't overcome rage and bitterness and resentment and anxiety and despair. The only way that you can overcome failure and evil and deformed habits is when you start by admitting, yes, yeah, 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 I'm pretty weak. But that's okay. Because he's strong. One author, as I close, said this, the power of the Christian story lies in its steadfast refusal to cover up and deny the truth. So what's the truth for all of us? The truth for all of us as we march forward to Easter is that there is a gap for every single person. So rather than denying it, let's confess it. Let's give it to Jesus. And as you give it to Jesus, I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise, God's love will flood that gap. See, here's the thing, as I end, Hasatan, the devil, he will do whatever he can in his power to stop you from confessing Why? Because he, he works in lies. He is a liar. He's a pathological liar. And so when you bring things to light, that's the beginning of freedom. Can I get an amen? So what, do you, what, what some of you are thinking, oh man, I want this. I want freedom. I want healing. I want God's power. But man, I just think, what if I admit this and I just get shame? I promise you that does not come from God. The devil will shame you all stinking day over your, he'll shame you about your past. Like he is a master at getting you to focus on, okay, 10 years ago, you even remember the date because he's a master of showing you how flawed you are. And not just his master, his master or his, his art is not just in showing you how flawed you are because we know we're all flawed. But as he does that so he can bring you to a point of shame. So he'll shame you in your past. He'll shame you in your present. He'll shame you even about your future. He'll shame you about your strengths. He'll shame you about who you're not. He'll go on and on and on. Shame, 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 shame. That does not come from God. If you experience that, remember today, that does not come from Jesus. What you get when you confess is love. What you get is joy. What you get is shalom. What you get is peace, come on. What you get is hope. What you get is victory. What you get is the Father saying over you as his child, man, I love you so stinking much. Come here. You get the embrace of the Holy Spirit. I want us as a church moving forward in this next season 
to name the distance. It's not just a one-time thing. I think it's a daily thing where we start bringing our flaws to Jesus and letting Jesus heal the flaws in us. Amen. I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes.